final lecture for week one, I'm going to look at the keys to interest group success. Uh, to review, interest groups uh, that we're going to be talking about in this class, formal interest groups organize, they have a name, they have a membership, they have specific policy uh, preferences, they uh, work through various channels to uh, try to achieve uh, their preferred policy outcomes. What leads to success in these endeavors? Now, part of what we're going to look at in weeks two and three is what leads to success in the electoral realm, what leads to success in legislative lobbying, executive lobbying, and uh, judicial lobbying. So this idea of what leads to success is going to be developed in a more specific way in those four different domains. Uh, for this lecture, I just want to sort of provide a general map for what are the factors that produce success versus failure. What are the factors that actually, maybe it's better to say instead of success and failure, that provide greater opportunities or provide uh, a larger number of obstacles for certain kinds of interest groups? Every formal interest group is situated differently from every other one um, because uh, they have a differential set of potential resources available to them. And they also have a differential set of actual resources available to them. So the first key to interest group success are resources. Um, there are three main categories of resources that I talk about in this class. One is money. This is the most obvious one. I hardly need to say much about it because this is what most people think uh, is, uh, leads to success in politics. Money leads to success. It's definitely an important resource. Money does a lot of things and we will see as we drill down into the various uh, forms of interest group advocacy in weeks two and three just what it is that money can do. But money can't do everything. And money doesn't necessarily lead to uh, automatic success, right? Candidates who outspend their opponents don't always win elections. Um, lobbying groups that spend more money than other uh, lobbying groups don't always get their preferred policy outcomes. If I were an interest group, I would always, of course, prefer to have more rather than less money, but it is not necessarily the ultimate key to success. Um, the other two resources that are typically undervalued or at least under-discussed that I think are extremely important are size of membership. And that is both the formal membership of that interest group as well as the latent, uh, um, unorganized, informal uh, interest groups that might align with yours. So if you, are, if you represent uh, an interest group of small business people, that has a certain membership and there's a certain number of people who are going to who are going to donate money and who are going to lobby and are going to vote and are going to write their state legislators and they're going to uh, go and testify at committees and do all that stuff that the members of the organized interest group do um, there are also unaffiliated small business people whose interests are uh, aligned to a certain extent with the formal interest group and so size at both of these levels matters the more people that have an interest that is aligned with your interest group's uh, preferred policy outcomes, the more successful you're going to be. And the third resource is energy. And energy is, comes in a number of different forms. Uh, the two sort of main forms that energy come in in terms of politics is like time and activism. People who are willing to give their time to doing things like going and knocking on doors and gathering signatures or uh, uh, you know, just t talking up the cause. Um, uh, people who are willing to go and directly meet with state legislators or regulators, uh, people who are willing to go uh, on marches and go to community meetings. All of that activist energy is a really important uh, um, resource for an interest group because politics is not just about votes and money. 
It's also about human sweat. There's, there, there's a sweat equity side to politics, particularly in the interest group struggle, right? Because uh, what interest groups are actually doing is trying to get policies across the finish line. And to a certain extent, you have to just put in the time and the effort and get uh, sort of the long-term engagement with uh, policymakers, with decision makers, long-term engagement that gets them to actually take up your cause, listen to your cause, support your cause, rally others in, in favor of your cause. It's, a, it's typically, it's a very long process. And so energy in terms of that sort of activist time and effort, sweat equity is gonna really matter. Energy also comes in the form of ideas. Um, ideas, policy innovations, but also ideas about strategy, ideas for collaboration, ideas for turning latent uh, support into actual support. So uh, the ideas are a really important form of energy in politics, particularly when it's a, uh, your interest group is, is aimed at some kind of reform. Um, innovative reform ideas are much more likely to uh, kind of have traction than old stale ideas that have been around for 20 or 30 years that people are just like, oh, I've heard it or whatever. It's like, ah, you know, there's it's gonna be a lot less support uh, for old stale ideas. So ideas about policy reforms, as well as ideas about how to actually like, you know, go about doing this. Like what are good ways of raising awareness among policymakers of our cause, of our issue? So money, size of membership, both formal and informal, um, and energy, both in terms of activist energy, time and activity and sweat, as well as energy in the form of ideas and, and, and innovations. Some interest groups have access to a lot of resources and other interest groups have access to less resources. Um, in a democratic society, actually, what's interesting is that the most directly valuable resource is size. Right? Because size means votes, and votes obviously get you success in the electoral policy arena. And then when you have a lot of votes, it makes your lobbying efforts much easier, particularly in the legislative uh, domain, um, because legislators and executive people in executive positions have to run for re-election. And so when you have lots of votes, you're going to have the attention of people who are in office. You're also going to have the attention of people who are hopefuls to be in office, who are going to want to get your votes, so they're going to be more likely to support you. So uh, some groups have lots and lots of uh, uh, size, right? Like one of the most successful interest groups in America is the National Rifle Association, and another one of the most successful interest groups in uh, America is the American Association of Retired People. Both of those groups get their policy outcomes, their preferred policy outcomes, way more than almost anybody else. One big reason, not money. The NRA spends money and they spend you know, tens of millions of dollars and they, have, they, they can raise a lot of money, but they are way outspent by interest groups that have way fewer members than them. Right? The US Chamber of Commerce outspends the NRA 20 or 50 to one, easily, maybe even more. Um, but the Chamber of Commerce doesn't win its policy battles as often. It wins more often than other uh, interest groups do, um, but it doesn't win nearly as often as the NRA, despite the fact that it outspends it by a huge factor. It's because the NRA has a lot of members. Um, the American Association of Retired People has a lot of members. And both of those formal interest groups have large membership, official membership, people who actually are card-carrying in, in, in that sense, but also they have really big latent uh, membership, people who 
are aligned with them, you know, pe people who are older, who don't necessarily belong to the AARP, the, the, when the AARP succeeds, people who aren't members of it, who are older people, who are retired people, they benefit. Um, gun owners who aren't necessarily members of the, the National Rifle Association, or even people who are not necessarily gun owners, but who support robust gun rights, um, they have a values-based interest. It's not that I want to keep my gun or be able to buy more guns. I have a value-based uh, uh, um, uh, interest in less gun regulation. You might not be a member of the NRA, but when the NRA succeeds, your interest is also advanced. So both of those groups have size. Both of those groups also have a pretty high level of energy. Now, um, but clearly, money is useful, right? More money is better than less money. And you can overcome a deficit in size and energy if you have lots of money. Um, you can also overcome deficits in money if you have lots of size and energy. So the, these, these resources, essentially, there are two separate categories. Um, there's really no perfect interest group that has the highest level of all of them. Typically, the way uh, resources are distributed in our society, for interest groups that have larger memberships, they actually don't have as, as much monetary resources. Um, even though they have more sources of donation, right? like the NRA has more people to donate to it than the, net, than the US Chamber of Commerce has to donate to it, but the, the financial resources that the Chamber of Commerce members have far exceeds the financial resources of the uh, members of the NRA. And so the Chamber of Commerce can raise way more money from a smaller base of donors. That's typically how uh, the trade-offs go in uh, American political society. Now, if you have access to resources, you're going to be more likely to be successful than not. Like if you're a poor, underfunded, small interest group with a moderate amount of energy, you're just not going to win very often, right? If you're a, a small, poorly funded interest group with lots and lots of energy, you'll win more often than a group that doesn't have as much energy as you, but you're not going to win as often as a group that, say, has uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of members and supporters. The other key factor to uh, success, I should say the another, there are three main categories of it, um, the another is not just access to resources, but the use of resources. Um, this is where you translate what's possible out in the world into what you actually can use, what you can bring to bear in the political system. Uh, there are three main areas where the use of resources can be amplified. One is efficiency, right? Let's say you have a lot of money, but you spend that money on a bunch of ads that don't change people's minds. That's not a very efficient use of resources. Um, let's say that you have a lot of members um, who uh, would vote for candidates or for ballot measures that, uh, that your interest group supports, but you don't have a very good outreach uh, mechanism to get those members aware and activated and to turn them from uh, members and you know, allegedly supporters of your policy into actually people who vote for uh, um, those uh, candidates and ballot measures that, that support those policies. So resources can be squandered with inefficient use. And efficiency comes with professionalism. Um, professionalism is the ability to effectively act in the political arena to maximize the use of the resources you have available. Also efficiency is the ability to marshal more resources in a way that is not more costly than it is beneficial. 
let's say that your organization has um, a lot of members, but uh, the, and those, those members are not really very aware of what your interest group is doing, and you don't have a very good outreach, you need better communication, you need more people to read your newsletter, your email blasts, to look at your Facebook page or your website. Um, so what do you do? Well, somebody in your organization might say, our problem is we don't have enough money to advertise to these people. There's all these people out there who are members and who would support us in our efforts to elect uh, um, uh, supportive candidates and to uh, back up our lobbying efforts in the legislature. Um, we need more money. So let's say that, that you spend whatever energy you have trying to raise more money and then you put that money into television and radio ads that don't effectively communicate to your members. Right? You might have been better off in trying to raise a little bit of money to be able to then increase your direct outreach, direct mail, newsletter signups, email blasts, targeted Facebook uh, ads, something that would use less money but would use it more effectively for the kind of communication that is going to turn your members into supportive, active voters and uh, um, lobby supporters, right? Like, so if, you, if you're going to go do a lobbying effort at a state legislature and you have 10,000 people come march with signs outside the legislature that day, you're going to have a lot more success than if 45 people show up with kind of lame signs, hand, handwritten signs. Um, so uh, efficiency is extremely important. Access to resources is clearly very important. More money is better than less money. More voters is better than fewer voters. More energy is better than less energy. But using that, those sets of resources efficiently requires professionalism and it requires strategy and it requires experience. Um, one of the reasons why money is so good in politics is because it can, t it can buy the highest level of professionalism and expertise much more easily, right? M many people who have the highest order of political skills, who know how to put together a good uh, um, advertising campaign, who know how to put together a good activist campaign to get a lot of people out to a state legislature for a lobbying day, who know how to raise money and communicate directly with uh, members of the organization, those people are rare commodities and they are in, in the free labor market of uh, political expertise they are more valuable and they make more money. So an organization that can pay people a lot for their expertise are going to be more efficient. So efficiency and monetary resources are connected in that way. Um, but you could have a lot of money, and if you don't use that money to buy expertise, then you could waste an awful lot of money. In fact, organizations sometimes will spend a lot of money to raise money. Fundraisers are very effective ways of generating thousands, tens of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars in support. Fundraisers can be extremely expensive if you don't know what you're doing. Right? If you raise $100,000 but spend $50,000 raising that $100,000, you raise $50,000. If you raise $60,000 by spending $1,000, your fundraiser is on paper less successful because you only made 60 instead of 100, but you've netted your group more than uh, the, the other group has. Um, it's also important to know when more money is less useful and when other types of organizing efforts are more useful, right? Generating more financial resources for um, supporting candidates can sound like the golden ticket to success in uh, um, uh, politics, but it doesn't necessarily work for every group. Not every group is going to benefit by being able to raise millions of dollars and pour that millions of dollars into elections. So knowing what types of efforts 
efficiently using and effectively marshalling your resources and maximizing your resources, turning latent resources into actual resources. This is all one of the biggest keys uh, to interest group success, professionalism and that type of, uh, of expertise. Um, another way that resources can be used most effectively is if your group has unity. And unity is something that can be generated, but it's also something that kind of comes to you or doesn't come to you, right? I've, I mentioned earlier the NRA and the AARP. Both of those groups have high levels of unity based on the issues that they represent. Um, the uh, National Rifle Association, the uh, people who are uh, gun rights supporters, tend to be single-issue voters. They're not all single-issue voters, but they are much more likely to be single-issue voters. And so the NRA has a lot of unity. So that when the NRA puts out their endorsements for candidates, it knows that most of its members are going to vote for those people. Um, if you have a lack of unity, you could put out your endorsements, and your members could say, well, yeah, that's what the, that's what the leadership wants, but what's more important to me is this other issue and the candidates that the, that the organization are endorsing, I'm supportive of this organization, I want this organization to win, but the candidates they're endorsing actually go against this other issue that's really important to me. Um, labor unions are interest groups that used to have a high level of unity and have had a fraying uh, level of unity for the last 40 years. Um, in the middle of the 20th century, union endorsements essentially meant that Almost all, if not all, of the members of the union would vote for, for the candidates that the union leadership wanted. And if the union leadership said, we need to come out for this picket line, we need to come out for this protest, we need to come out for this lobbying day, um, then a giant number of uh, members of the union would, would go out and do that. Um, and that was largely because the unity that unions had was based on the fact that their members had material interests that were aligned and they saw their material benefits as the primary reason for their political and economic activity. Increasingly, members of unions, they share uh, material interests, right? That's, why they're, that, that, that's what brings them together in a union. They are, their employment situates them similarly, and so they will all get more money or less money together. But their political interests, their value-based interests can vary quite a bit. Um, one of the things that happened in the 2016 election is that uh, Hillary Clinton got almost every union endorsement in the country, right? There were, there were a handful that went to Trump, right? Some police unions, uh, some firefighters unions, I think a truckers union. A few, a few union endorsements went to Donald Trump, but the overwhelming uh, majority of union endorsements went to Hillary Clinton. But many rank and file union members voted for Donald Trump against the advice of their leadership. Um, and they did so because their, either their material interests were not their primary consideration in voting, um, and the material interests were the primary consideration in the, in the union leaderships uh, giving the endorsement to Clinton versus Trump, or they didn't see their material interests the same way that the union leadership saw their material interests, which has been an increasing dynamic in unions, is that membership, rank and file membership, see the world differently than, than uh, the leadership has. And so when you have that divide between membership and leadership, you're going to have less unity. Um, now, this is an example of where you can work to generate a higher level of unity. Right? The NRA has a high level of unity uh, going in. The AARP has a high level of unity because retired people, many of whom are living on a fixed income and understand that certain 
government policies are essential uh, to remain in place or to be increased for people who are living on fixed incomes. And the when you're a retired person, you're gonna like you're you're vulnerable. Your values are gonna take second place to your material benefits in a lot of cases. There's a high level of automatic unity for both of those groups. Other groups can increase their level of unity by activities, by communication, by essentially um, campaigning their own members to be more unified behind the goals and activities of the organization's leadership. So unity is something that falls in the laps of some, some organizations. Other, la other organizations have a taller hill to climb to maintain unity, but there, you, you can, again, through efficiency and expertise, you can generate a higher or lower level of unity. One of the things that generates uh, unity at a higher level is effective internal communications. How well do you get out the word to your members in a way that one, shows them specifically what you want them to support, and two, is in a form where they're gonna take it in, right? I get all kinds of emails and I get newsletters all the time from various organizations that either represent me um, uh, specifically because I'm a member or that want me to support them because I'm a latent member, because I'm, in, uh, I represent, I'm part of an informal interest group. I read almost none of them. But uh, when I do, if it's too long and full of bad information, I delete it really quickly, as I'm sure many people relate to their, to their emails the this, this same way. If an email catches my eye and it's short and crisp and effectively conveys to me what I should be doing, I'm much more likely to get behind the activities of that particular interest group. So unity can be, uh, effectively generated, but some some organizations have more of it than others. Um, one of the differences between liberal and conservative interest groups is that conservative interest groups tend to have a higher level of automatic unity. I said this in a previous lecture, largely because the positions that they represent are fixed, traditional, uh, specific. Uh, um, things that have existed in the world that they're trying to conserve or return. Um, whereas liberals, often, they want the world to be different, but they have a variety of different, often conflicting, or at least sort of diffuse policy solutions. Much easier to get unity behind preserving the status quo or by returning to some kind of traditional value or traditional practice than it is to get unity behind uh, an untried policy or uh, some kind of thing in the future. It's much easier to generate unity around a conservative position than around a liberal position. That's not to say that you can't generate unity for a liberal interest group, and it's not to say that conservative interest groups automatically have unity. It's just that for conservative groups, it's a, typically the, the conditions are uh, easier for them, and for a liberal group, the conditions are harder for them. Um, one other thing about how effectively you can use your resources is how well is your interest group and its policy preferences aligned with the political conditions that exist? I don't call political conditions a resource because you can't really marshal them and use them efficiently. They exist. Um, you can nudge them. And this is one of the things that, that we will see in week four when you go to work on public opinion, and I mentioned it in the, in the previous lecture, is that you can create, to a certain extent, or you can try to create more amenable political conditions so that your policies are more likely to, one, go to the top of the agenda, and two, be enacted in a strong way rather than a weak way. Um, the political conditions that 
are the third category of factors that lead to success or failure or uh, opportunities versus obstacles for interest groups um, are uh, the political conditions, which are the current policy concerns of the people, whoever the people happen to be. And the people could be the people who got elected into the government. What do they care about, right? Like, you got elected, and what's your primary concerns, right? Um, also, the uh, current uh, um, policy concerns of the, of the people, of the state, or of the nation, or of the city, whatever community uh, happens to be uh, um, having a set of concerns. Current policy concerns are typically impacted by current events. Um, what, do, what makes elected officials, hopeful politicians, and voters, what makes them care about certain things? Typically, the stuff that's happening right in front of their face, right? Um, do we care about government readiness for uh, a, an infectious virus right now? Hell yeah, we do, because we're in the middle of a pandemic. Did we care about it eight months ago? Not much. Um, do we care about effective healthcare systems now? Very much so. Did we care about effective healthcare systems eight, six, eight months ago? More than about pandemic readiness, but still not uh, as much. Um, what did we care about more six months ago? The economy. Um, what did we care about right after 9-11? National security, terrorism, right? Current events uh, typically raise certain kind of latent abstract concerns to a high level of importance. If political conditions are right, if current events uh, occur and are sort of sustained enough that the uh, policy concerns of people in office and of uh, citizens uh, stay focused on an issue, that's going to make it much easier for an interest group to get their policy enacted. Um, the state of public opinion, which is connected to uh, the current policy concerns, is also a factor that impacts uh, political conditions. And public opinion typically changes more glacially, though current events will obviously bump it up, right? Um, there are way more Americans right now who believe that there's systemic racism in our policing system than believe that two years ago. So public opinion is now much stronger and more intense, right? More people think this is actually a pressing problem as opposed to a secondary problem than thought so uh, one year ago. Um, this is obviously impacted by current events, but public opinion can be influenced um, by either by generating events or by taking events that occur and amplifying the, the, them uh, by making them uh, put it by, by promoting their uh, cause in front of the American people. And we'll talk a little bit about public opinion and influencing public opinion in, in week four. Um, another piece of the political conditions that is even sort of harder to move and moves even more glacially is the background political culture. Um, these are the embedded values and long-term concerns of a particular political society. Um, one of the things about American political society is that one of our embedded values is kind of this anti-authoritarian stance that goes back to colonial days and the, the American Revolution. Americans tend to be distrustful of the government. So if you're an organization whose interest is to get more government activity, more uh, subsidies, more regulations, more government programs, whatever it happens to be that you want the government to do more of than it is currently doing. One of the hills that you face, one of the hills that you have to climb, is the basic American distrust of government. Now, some Americans distrust the government more than others. 
So uh, obviously it's not just that all Americans are totally anti-authoritarian, but there really is this kind of background value that even if you like what the government does in certain ways, like I like the fact that it you know, provides social security, there's a distrust of the government that's sort of broad-based. So that's something that, again, if you're a liberal group asking for more, you're gonna have a harder time because of the background conditions and the background values of American political culture than if you're a conservative group. Um, also, what are the long-term sort of embedded concerns? What are the values and what are the concerns? Typically, groups that represent policies that will promote economic growth are going to do better than groups that promote policies that are going to potentially curtail or hurt growth because uh, economic growth is a background concern for our broader capitalist culture. Again, not every American supports economic growth over other goals, but in general, economic growth is seen as an important, valuable thing. And so if your interest group is aligned with that concern, you're gonna have a higher level of success than if your interest group is working against that concern. It doesn't mean that you can't win if, you are, if, if your policies go against the general grain of the background political culture, but it does make it much more difficult, right? Um, the NRA, again, like the NRA has size, it has unity, it also has the political culture at its back. Um, even Americans who aren't gun owners are distrustful enough of the government that they, they like that Second Amendment argument that, that guns help keep the government sort of honest and keep, uh, pre prevent tyranny, but also there's just this broader sense of like personal freedom. Let people do what they want. More government regulation, telling people when, when they can and can't buy guns, how much ammunition they can buy, that rankles. And so the NRA has a lot of wins at its back. It is probably the most successful interest group, specifically on the policies it wants. Um, I would say the AARP is, 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 is close to that as well, but the NRA is just the example of, of a group that wins almost every policy battle, despite the fact that there are mass shootings all the time and current events raise, pol raise the public concern uh, about uh, um, mass shootings and about the ease of, of acquiring uh, weapons and about mental health as it, it relates to firearms. The NRA wins so often, despite these things, because of their size, because of their unity, their efforts to maintain unity, the NRA has a very effective internal communication uh, um, system, and as well as the fact that the background political culture, uh, it supports the kind of non-policy, the kind of status quo orientation, less gun regulation. And they're asking for a conservative thing. They wanna conserve less regulation. They're not asking for a rollback. They're actually fighting to keep the, uh, the, the I mean, of course there are certain things they want rolled back, but, uh, there are very few gun regulations to roll back. The NRA mostly is just trying to hold the line on them. So uh, the keys to success for interest groups, what are the resources available to them? How well do they make use of those resources? And how uh, um, amenable are the political conditions to uh, the policies that they want? Um, all of these areas are to a certain extent kind of beyond the control of interest groups and slightly within the control of interest groups. Um, you can't necessarily automatically have unity that's sort of beyond your control. It's mostly like, well, what is the issue and is there, is there a group of people who are unified behind it? Um, but you can amplify unity. Um, you can't really increase the latent size of your, of, uh, your supporters based on what your uh, particular interest you're representing is, but you can turn latent support into actual support. You can turn the unorganized into the formally organized. Um, you can't necessarily uh, create the political conditions with the snap of a finger that you want 
through concerted uh, um, influencing of public opinion, but you can move public opinion, you can do various things to influence it, you can take advantage of moments, um, but, and you can also uh, you know, hope for changes in the background uh, political culture. America's background political culture has become slowly but surely uh, and you know, I shouldn't say surely, slowly and with, with, with uh, backsliding, more tolerant of diversity, more socially tolerant, more socially liberal uh, over the course of the last uh, 100 years. And so if you're in support of policies that give greater freedom to people to have whatever lifestyle they want to have, then uh, the glacial movement of, of uh, our political culture towards greater and greater acceptance of, of different lifestyles and, and diverse backgrounds and diverse practices, then that, that, it, that is something that you're going to get, but it, it's going to be slow and it's hard to hurry that kind of thing along. Um, <clears throat> so those are the keys uh, to interest group success. We're going to use these ideas to analyze specific uh, advocacy channels in weeks two and three to see what it is specifically that leads to the success at winning elections, success at lobbying the legislature, success at lobbying the executive, and success at lobbying uh, the judiciary.